0: Welcome to Hanchuk Targets History. I'm your host, Tim Hanchuk. Thanks for joining me this episode. You know, I've been teaching high school history for way too many years, and I love talking about this stuff. So let me share with you some interesting, unique, and little-known historical events. I know you'll be entertained, and if you're not careful, you just might learn something too. So, let's lock and load and take a shot at that target of history and see what we can hit. Let's take a walk down range and see what the target shows us. Hey, looks like today we hit on the Halifax Explosion. This was a disaster that took place on December 6, 1917, obviously in Halifax, Nova Scotia. To this day, it still ranks up there as one of the largest non-nuclear man-made explosions in history. Let's see how such a terrible disaster happened. By December in 1917, World War I was well into its third year of fighting. Crucial supplies and troops from North America crossed the Atlantic to help the Allied war effort. Of course, the Central Powers, namely Germany, didn't want this to happen. If you'll recall from your history classes, the Germans had great success disrupting Atlantic shipping with their U-boats. Of course, to counter this, the Allies began to use a convoy system as protection. And that's what brings us to Halifax. Its harbor was one of the two main departure points for convoys to assemble and hook up with the Royal Navy to be escorted across the Atlantic. Let me give you a rough description of the geography of the place. The entrance to the harbor was on the south, leading to the Atlantic. The entrance had an island as well, called McNab's Island, which created eastern and western approaches into the harbor. On the west shore of the harbor itself was the city of Halifax, which had about 50,000 residents in 1917. On the east shore was the smaller city of Dartmouth, whose 1917 population was around 6,500. To the north of the harbor, the waterway narrowed into an area called, well, the Narrows, and north of this, it widened out again into the Bedford Basin. This large protected area was where convoys would assemble before their departure. And speaking of protection, it was guarded by patrol ships from the Royal Canadian Navy. On top of this, anti-submarine nets were strung across the entrance to the harbor, with a sort of gateway that, when open, allowed ships to pass through. This gate was closed each night. Shore batteries, manned by a large garrison, gave additional protection. Not only did this make Halifax Harbor a prime location for European-bound convoys to assemble, but it also was the port that all neutral ships bound for North America were required to stop at for inspection. And speaking of neutral ships, on December 3, 1917, the Norwegian ship the SS Emo sailed into the harbor. The Emo, which came from the Netherlands, was commanded by Captain Håkon From and was bound for New York to pick up relief supplies for Belgium. It was 131 meters long and had large signs on each side reading Belgian relief to show its neutrality and hopefully deter attacks. The crew of 39 sailors, being from a neutral ship, were not allowed on shore. So, the Emo spent the next two days anchored in the Bedford Basin, undergoing its neutral ship inspection and awaiting fresh supplies, including more fuel. On Wednesday, December 5th, the Emo passed its inspection and was given clearance to leave the port. The problem was, though, that their fuel shipment didn't arrive until after 5.30, over two hours later than expected. By the time this was loaded, the gate in the subnet had already closed for the evening. Captain Frome and his restless crew were forced to delay their departure until the next morning. Now also on december fifth, as night began to fall, the French cargo ship, the SS Mont Blanc, arrived from New York. It was there to join up with a convoy that was gathering in the Bedford Basin, bound for Europe. The Mont Blanc was commanded by Captain Ami Lemedic, and was ninety seven meters long, with a crew of thirty six, it was loaded to the brim with munitions for the Allied war effort. Check this out. In its hold, the Mont Blanc carried 2,366 tons of picric acid, which was an explosive, a bit more powerful, but less stable than TNT. And speaking of TNT, they also carried 250 tons of that. There were a further 62 tons of gun cotton as well. Gun cotton, or nitrocellulose, is also an explosive. That's about six times as powerful as black powder, and far more dangerous to store. Oh yeah, and there were 246 tons of benzol, which is a highly flammable fuel, stored in barrels, lashed to the deck. Do I need to say that smoking was not allowed on board? Anyway, the Mont Blanc arrived after the gate in the subnet was closed so it had to anchor off McNabb's Island and await clearance to enter the harbor the following morning. That night, harbor pilot Francis Mackey came aboard in preparation for the following morning. Considering what the ship was carrying, Mackey asked about any special precautions, like a guard ship, but nothing was put in place. (laughs) So we have one ship in a hurry to leave the harbor, and another, with a highly volatile cargo, waiting to get in. I wonder what's going to happen. The following morning, Thursday, December 6th, at 7.30, the Mont Blanc was cleared to proceed to Bedford Basin. With harbor pilot Mackie at the controls, it was the second ship through the now-open gate in the subnet. Mackie had to be wary of small boat traffic as the Mont Blanc proceeded, including ferry boats running between Halifax and Dartmouth. He had to keep the ship to the Dartmouth side of the harbor, because just like on land, traffic traveled on the right-hand side in the harbor and narrows. At around the same time, the Emo was getting underway in Bedford Basin. Harbor pilot William Hayes, who, by the way, was a close friend and colleague of pilot Mackey, had control of the ship. He was very conscious of Captain Frome's frustration with being delayed the previous day and increased the Emo's speed past the five-knot limit set for the harbor. At 8:10, the Emo was given the go-ahead signal from the guardship HMCS Arcadia to leave the basin and proceed into the Narrows. Near Pier 9, she encountered the SS Clara, an American tramp steamer coming the other way. The Clara was headed to the western side of the basin, and so its pilot was sailing it on the Halifax side of the Narrows. In essence, it was in the wrong lane. Think of it like driving left to center because you're planning to make a left-hand turn. Kind of dangerous if there's oncoming traffic. The Emo blew one whistle, signaling that they had the right-of-way, and expected the Clara to move back into her lane. The Clara's pilot didn't want to do this, and through a further series of whistles, the two ships agreed that the Emo would move to its left, that is, the Dartmouth side of the Narrows, for the ships to pass. Five minutes later, The Emo encountered the tugboat Stella Maris towing two scows full of ash up to Bedford Basin. The captain of the Stella Maris, Horatio Brannan, saw the Emo approaching in the wrong lane and at a high rate of speed. To avoid a crash, he swerved his tug toward the Halifax side. The Emo also responded by veering further into the wrong lane and almost running aground on the Dartmouth side. By the time the Emo steadied herself, the Mont Blanc was approaching. Pilot Mackey saw the emo about three quarters of a mile off, and became concerned that she was in the wrong lane and appeared to be on a course to cut him off. Mackie blew one blast from the ship's whistle, announcing he had the right away. The emo responded with two whistles. This meant that they would not yield and planned to continue their current course. The Mont Blanc cut her engines and again blew a single whistle. Again, the Emo responded with two whistles. By this point, the Emo had also cut her engines, but of course, the two ships were still being carried by momentum. Mackie found himself in a really tight spot. He could, perhaps, have steered further right and grounded the Mont Blanc on the Dartmouth side to avoid a collision, but he didn't want to do that because he was afraid the shock of hitting would somehow set off the explosive cargo. Instead. He steered hard to the left to cross the Emo's bow and try to get out of the way. At this point, it was 8.45, and the two ships were almost parallel to each other, when suddenly, the Emo blew three blasts from her whistle. This signaled that she was putting her engines into reverse. This sudden reverse caused the Emo's bow to turn and hit the Mont Blanc's right side, even with the number one hold. Now, in reality... It was a relatively minor collision, with both ships moving at such a slow speed. The damage to the hull of the Mont Blanc was minimal, but unfortunately, the collision did topple over many of the barrels of benzol that were stored on the deck. Barrels broke open, flooding the deck with this highly flammable fuel, which poured over the side of the ship and began to flow down hatchways and into the hold. As the emo backed away to disengage. The grinding of the ship's hulls caused sparks to fly, which quickly ignited the benzol vapors. In the blink of an eye, fire spread up the hull and onto the deck of the Mont Blanc. Oh, that can't be good. With his ship on fire and rapidly becoming engulfed in thick smoke, Captain Lemedek feared that it would explode in any second. He ordered all hands to abandon ship. The crew, including Harbor Pilot Mackey, piled into two lifeboats and began rowing to the Dartmouth side of the harbor. The now-abandoned Mont Blanc continued to burn as it drifted toward the Halifax side. It finally beached itself at Pier 6, which was near the foot of Richmond Street. As this drama played out, crowds began to gather on shore to watch this massive fire. Remember the tugboat Stella Maris? When Captain Brannan and his crew witnessed the collision, they quickly anchored their scows and moved toward the Mont Blanc. They began to spray the burning ship with their hose, but quickly realized that the fire was way too intense for just a single hose. They backed off. Soon, though, they were approached by a whaler from the HMS High Flyer and a steam pinnacle from the HMCS Niobe. Captain Brannon talked with Albert Madison of the Niobe, and they formed a plan to have both vessels secure a line to the Mont Blanc stern and tow it away from the pier, so the fire wouldn't spread. Initially, a 5-inch line was produced, but Brannon didn't think it would be strong enough. A 10-inch line was called for, but before it could be brought, the Mont Blanc exploded. The explosion took place at 9.04 a.m., with a blast equivalent to 2.9 kilotons of TNT. To give you a point of comparison, the atomic bomb dropped on Hiroshima, was estimated at 15 kilotons. The Mont Blanc was blown apart in white hot pieces of debris, some as large as cars, rained down on Halifax and Dartmouth. The ship's 90 millimeter deck gun was thrown three and a half miles north and landed with its barrel melted away. So great was the blast that the harbor floor was momentarily exposed by the volume of water that was displaced. Water rushing back into this void actually created a tsunami that rose 60 feet above the high water mark as it hit the shores. The tsunami threw the Emo up onto the Dartmouth shore and killed all but one of her crew. All aboard the Pinnacle from the Niobe were killed, as were all but one on the whaler from the High Flyer. 21 of the 26-man crew of the Stella Maris perished as it, too, was thrown onto the Dartmouth shore. Captain Brannon's son, First Mate Walter Brannan, and four others survived when they were thrown into the hold by the blast. The crew of the Mont Blanc, which had taken to their lifeboats, all survived, except for one unfortunate man. Somewhere around 1,600 people were killed instantly in the blast, with another 9,000 injured. At least 300 of the injured would later succumb from their wounds, as the total deaths have been estimated at over 1,900 people. Every building within a 1.6 mile radius of the explosion was either completely destroyed or severely damaged. This amounted to over 12,000 structures. Even outside that area of total destruction, more damage took place. The massive shockwave overturned stoves and oil lamps, starting fires throughout the city. The north end was particularly bad, as entire city blocks burned, with many residents trapped inside their homes. The shockwave also blew out windows across the city. Hundreds of people who had been watching the event from their own homes were blinded by flying shards of shattered glass. Records indicate that a dozen ophthalmologists ended up treating a total of 592 people with eye injuries, including 41 cases in which one or both eyes were so badly damaged that they had to be completely removed. The first rescue efforts came from people who survived the blast and went to work trying to pull people from the rubble. Surviving police, firefighters, and military personnel also began to arrive, and anyone with a working vehicle was called upon to help transport the wounded to nearby hospitals. As more and more victims poured in, the hospitals quickly became overwhelmed. For example, the newly built military hospital, Camp Hill, took in 1,400 cases by the end of that day. Surviving firefighters worked to extinguish the many blazes throughout the city. Fire companies from neighboring towns also began to arrive. By the end of the day, relief trains had brought firefighters from as far away as Amherst, Nova Scotia, which was 120 miles, and Moncton, New Brunswick, which was 160. And speaking of trains, the overnight train from St. John's was just approaching the city when the explosion happened. Passengers and soldiers helped collect survivors, bandaging wounds with torn-up sheets from the sleeping cars. More injured people were brought to the train, and when it was full, it left the city to evacuate the wounded to the town of Truro at about 1.30 p.m accompanied by one doctor who could be spared. As news of the disaster spread, rescue trains were dispatched from across Atlantic Canada and northeastern United States. The first arrived at about noon, bringing medical personnel and supplies, and also served to evacuate wounded and the homeless. By nightfall, a dozen trains had arrived. Meanwhile, in the harbor, some of the first organized rescue parties were sent ashore from Royal Navy cruisers who happened to be in port. The HMS High Flyer, who, if you'll recall, had lost one of its whalers in the explosion, was one of these. These cruisers were joined by a U.S. Coast Guard cutter, and later by two American cruisers who had been passing by and saw the huge cloud of smoke rising from the harbor. The American steamship Old Colony, which had been docked in Halifax for repairs, was quickly converted into a hospital ship. So, wow, what a terrible day! But at least it seems like rescue operations are starting to get going. But wait, it's about to get worse. On the next day, December 7th, a blizzard hit and dumped a foot and a half of heavy snow onto the ruined city. Trains en route from other parts of Canada and the U.S. became stuck in snowdrifts, and telegraph lines that had been hastily repaired the previous day were knocked down again. In essence, Halifax was cut off by the storm and the rescuers were forced to put their search for survivors on hold. On a slightly more positive note, the blizzard did help extinguish some of the fires that still blazed in parts of the city. Now so far I've just been talking about Halifax. What about other areas? As I mentioned at the beginning of this episode, Dartmouth had way less people than Halifax. On top of this, It was separated from the blast by the width of the harbor. Now that being said, buildings still suffered heavy damage, but the death toll was considerably less, with around a 100 people perishing. Those who were injured were able to be treated at Dartmouth's only hospital. There were also some settlements of the Mi'kmaq tribe around the coves of Bedford Basin on the Dartmouth side, as well as their Turtle Grove community, which was directly opposite Pier 9. The Department of Indian Affairs had been trying for the past few years to force the Mi'kmaq to give up their lands and move to a reserve. This hadn't happened. With Turtle Grove being almost directly across from the blast, it was completely obliterated. The total death toll is unknown. As for the survivors, they ended up being housed in a racially segregated building with rather poor facilities, and were eventually dispersed around Nova Scotia. The Turtle Grove settlement was not rebuilt. Just north of Halifax, on the southern shore of the Bedford Basin, was the black community of Africville. It actually escaped the direct force of the blast, being slightly protected by a rise of land. Even so, its small and frail homes were heavily damaged, and five deaths were recorded. Now here's the thing. On top of the persistent racism that was going on at the time, the land itself was in high demand for industrial expansion. As a result, Africville got very little of the relief funds that went to other parts of the city when it came time to rebuild. So hey, you know what I haven't brought up yet? Just exactly who was to blame for this tragedy? Well, a judicial inquiry called the Wreck Commissioner's Inquiry, was formed and began their investigation on December 13, 1917, just a week after the explosion. On February 4, 1918, the inquiry issued their report. They blamed the Mont Blanc's captain, Amile Medic, harbor pilot Francis Mackey, and Commander F. Evan Wyatt, the RCN's chief examining officer in charge of the harbor, for causing the collision. In their opinion, they said it was the Mont Blanc's responsibility alone to ensure that she avoided a collision at all costs, given her cargo. Wait a second, what about the Emo? Most people expected the inquiry to blame it, because it was traveling on the wrong side of the harbor. It seems, though, that the inquiry allowed itself to be influenced by local opinion, which at the time was strongly anti-French. Furthermore, the lawyer representing the Emo, was described as having a street fighter style of argumentation. And besides, all but one of the crew were dead, including the captain and pilot. So consequently, Lemetic, Mackie, and Wyatt found themselves charged with manslaughter and criminal negligence and were bound over for trial. A Nova Scotia Supreme Court justice found there was no evidence to support these charges against Lemetic and Mackey. Both had their charges dropped and were released, though it would take years of legal battles for Mackey to have his harbor pilot license reinstated. As for Wyatt, he went on trial on April 17th, but the jury acquitted him before the day was out. Wow, what a tragic episode. You know, I feel compelled to give you, kind listeners... At least one positive anecdote. So here goes. In 1918, the city of Halifax sent a Christmas tree to the city of Boston in thanks and remembrance for the help that the Boston Red Cross and the Massachusetts Public Safety Committee gave after the disaster. It seemed like this was a one-off gift, but the practice was revived in 1971 and has continued ever since. This tree is Boston's official Christmas tree and is proudly displayed on Boston Common throughout the season. Anyway, as I said at the very beginning of this episode, this tragic explosion was one of the largest non-nuclear mad made explosions the world has ever seen. Obviously, there have been several others over the years, but talking about those, well, that would be another story. And there you have it, kind listeners. Thank you for tuning in. You know, if you like this episode, please tell your friends. And check out some of my other episodes. And I very much look forward to talking with you again next week.